0: My world. Evidence and answers. As parents, we share everything or almost everything with our children. But how can we share apologetics with them? Defending their Christian faith is vital and biblical, as we are told to always be ready to respond. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat interviews Hilary Morgan Farrar, and they will be discussing her book entitled Mama Bear Apologetics. Now, here's Pat.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of Today. Well, Children today are bombarded on every side by false ideas presented to them by the culture, from school to the media to their friends. Well, How can we equip them at a young age to be discerning and equipped to face the challenges that will come upon their belief in God, the Bible, and Jesus Christ? Well parents, especially moms, can play a huge role in preparing children and grounding them in apologetics from a very young age. Well, how do we make this happen? Well, to help us today is our guest, Hilary Morgan Ferrer. She is the founder of Mama Bear Apologetics. She has a master's in biology and specializes in scientific apologetics, dealing with doubt and causes and solutions for youth leaving the church. So Hilary, welcome to Evidence and Answers.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well Hilary, first tell us, uh, we're looking at your book here, Mama Bear Apologetics. What was the motivation for this book?
2: So Mama Bear Apologetics, uh, it it started out as just a ministry and uh, with podcasts and with articles. And uh, we had uh, a publisher actually contact us and say, what kind of book would you like to do? And so uh, we got a, a group of us together and started talking about which books were already on the market. And what we saw was there was a lot of books out there that dealt with specific questions and answers. But the thing that I noticed that they didn't discuss is Where are these questions coming from? Everybody thinks that, you know, the questions that kids ask have just stayed the same throughout the centuries, and that's just not the case, and especially in recent decades, even since I was a kid, the questions have changed, and so we wanted to look at what were the underlying worldviews that were causing these questions? What, What were the things that were tripping kids up to begin with to where they were asking the questions they were asking about Jesus and the Bible and the resurrection? And so we go through all those worldviews to kind of give an understanding of the foundation, not only kind of where, where things have gone wrong, but how we can instill a healthy worldview in our kids from a young age so that when they encounter the questions, they don't, the questions don't even make sense because they have a really uh, biblical worldview to begin with.
1: Yes. Now, you state in your book that biblical thinking is more than memorizing Bible verses and going through the Awana program. Tell mm-hmm. us, what does it mean for our children and us to think biblically?
2: Well, in order to think biblically, like I mentioned, the the memorizing the verses in the Awana, but one of the things we have kids doing right now is asking, how do we even know what's truth? How do we know if the Bible's reliable? And so, no matter how many verses they have memorized, um, if they start questioning whether or not the Bible's inerrant, or if they start questioning whether or not the Bible can be trusted, Then they have all these verses that, I mean, they they have no idea if knowing these things are true. So to have a biblical worldview is not just knowing what the Bible says, but knowing, number one, that it's reliable, it can be trusted, and then knowing that truth itself exists. If a child does not believe, if a child has been trained by culture to say that truth is what I can make it, you know, I live my truth, you live your truth. There is no way for them to have a biblical worldview because the biblical worldview is based on the truth. And so we kind of almost have to go back a step to a lot of really foundational things like truth existing, sin existing, God existing, things like that. In order to have a biblical worldview, we have to ground the concepts that are in the Bible to begin with.
1: Yes, because already from a very young age, the foundations that underlie the foundations for the Bible are already attacked Uh, the existence of God is thrown into question therefore if there is no God there can be no word of God or no son of God or no miracles Mm -hmm. or acts of God and so what you're saying is quite valid that these foundational truths need to be established at a young age but it seems very high-level or esoteric I mean how how do you get the young (laughs) children to be thinking about these kinds of things at, at a young age?
2: First off, I'm going to say about the idea about God existing. That's one of the ones that even um, in a lot, of, a lot of books, they deal with that. But one of the things that even comes before that is how do we know what is knowledge? And that's one of the things that we address in the book of the idea of naturalism, where some people say the only way to, uh, for knowledge is for something to be tested in a science lab And so before we can even start discussing whether or not god exists we have to discuss first how do we gain knowledge
1: let's develop on that Uh, you talked about that we're drilled from a very young age that knowledge comes through science and you know when dewey Mm -hmm. did his educational reforms really science became king of how to determine knowledge how do you teach a young child well not only a young child uh, many adults that There are limits to science, and there is truth that is beyond science as well.
2: Yeah. Well, this one is one of those things where we start out the naturalism chapter talking about self-refuting statements. It's statements that, if they're true, actually refute themselves. And so the idea that the only way to gain knowledge is through the scientific method, that statement itself cannot be gotten through the scientific method. And so what people don't realize is anytime they're doing science, they're starting out with a philosophy, but these are the same people that want to say philosophy is dead. (laughs) And so I think it's really simple for kids to pick up on self-refuting statements and especially turning it into a game. You would be surprised at the number of stuff that kids are picking up on nowadays. This is like, doesn't have to do with scientism, but one of our mama bears was talking about how child the other day when she asked him to spit out uh, his gum before they went into church looked her in the face and said this is my body uh, and you don't have a right to tell me what to do with my body and this is a child that's not even in school yet so it's wow. like the messages that the world are turning out our kids are picking up on it but we i think we underestimate what they're able to do uh one of my friends and uh, colleagues natasha crane had a blog post several years ago about teaching logic to her six-year-old, and basically she taught them what bad logic was. And she, you know, she gave just like a really short spiel, talked about, you know, just because you want something to be true doesn't mean that it is true, or just because you or something that's a contradictory statement. And she thought it would just go straight over their head. but for the next couple of weeks, she'd be, you know, doing housework, and she would hear one of the kids scream out, "Bad logic!" to one of the <laughs> other kids. And same thing, one of the people that was on our launch team was talking about how her kids, oh my gosh, I love this. I would love to be around for this. Her kids will literally yell out in the middle of a, of a movie, bad worldview, when they see <laughs> something that they have been taught is a bad worldview. So I think one of the things as parents that we do is we underestimate what our kids are capable of picking up on, not only from the world, but also from us when we, when we go about things. And a lot of these things are when you turn it into a game. You turn it into a game to spot bad logic. You turn it into a game to spot a bad worldview. I think one of the greatest places to do this um, is like uh, craft fairs and, and Pinterest and stuff. You will find all sorts of nonsense put on, you know, embroidered the pillows or necklaces or whatever. For example, one I saw the other day was it said all good things are wild and free. And I don't know why this example came to my mind. My first, my first thought was, I don't want that to be true about my insulin. <laughs> I would oh. like my insulin to be controlled and, uh, and, and not wild. So it's like when you teach kids that make this a game, they start picking up these bad ideas. But what happens is then when they have people in the world, they have a professor, they have a friend that starts spouting this nonsense all of a sudden this game that you've been playing with them this whole time, they start seeing how there's people who really believe these things and they're not gonna fall prey to them.
1: Yeah, that's great. You're teaching us how we can teach logic, a basic skill at a very young age. I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners out there who are saying, Gosh, this is so philosophical. You know, how can I get trained in this? I don't have a philosophy background. Many out there don't even have a, a college background. How can I get trained in this?
2: Well, I, one of the purposes for the Mama Bear book is I wanted this to be understandable from anyone from a pregnant woman, just because I, I uh, heard from pregnancy, it's called the pregnancy stupids, where <laughs> nothing makes sense. I, I had a similar uh, response when I was in chemotherapy, it's called chemo brain, where you just You can't think through things. So it's like I wanted this to be understandable from everyone, from a a pregnant woman on on up to 70-year-old women who have never studied any of this stuff. And from the feedback that I've gotten from people who are reading this book, they're saying, I can't put it down. I can understand this. This makes sense. This has given me practical tips that I can understand. Or there's some people that have said, I've heard about these things my whole life, but I never knew what they were called. And I never understood what was going on. And so one of the major purposes of this book was to take um, the concepts that you might hear in philosophy programs or apologetics programs and explain it in really easy to understand language, give lots of examples, lots of analogies, break it down into its real core beliefs, and then give parents uh, ideas for activities and conversations that they can have with their kids to reinforce these ideas.
1: Yes, you know, that's one of the uh, missions and strengths of Evidence and Answers is to take these deep academic concepts and make it so at the popular level we can understand it. And I'm looking, you know, when I first got this uh, book, Mama Bear Apologetics, I had it on the shelf for a few weeks. But then when I read through it, I realized, yeah, that's exactly what you do. The same thing we do here at Evidence and Answers. You take these deep concepts and make it very easy to understand and applicable for everyone who is out there so i recommend this not only to moms but to dads as well and everyone else students i mean this is an outstanding book and understanding these concepts and how to apply them yeah this is just outstanding you know hillary you state here in your book that young people you know are leaving the church in droves one of the things statistics has shown is that high schoolers 60% or more you know abandon their faith in after 4 years of college but you say the problem is even before that tell us why why mm-hmm. do you believe young people are leaving the church
2: well i mean in some ways i don't think they're really being given a reason to stay when they uh, we we send kids to sunday school and we have a felt board and we're telling them stories they believe that they're bible stories in fact uh, the woman who i talk about in the introduction to this book Her name's Jody. After one of her children left the faith, when she thought that he was good, he'd he'd gone to Awana and youth group, even gotten re-baptized when he went to college. And then first job out of college, has an atheist boss and he decides he wants to leave the faith. And that's when she got involved in apologetics. So one of the things that she did is she went to a fifth grade girls Sunday school and she asked them, and these were kids who had gone to church their whole life. She said, are the things that you're learning... Are these real, true, historical stories, um, you know, is this history, or are they just stories? And I think it was a majority of the girls in this class said, oh, they're just stories. And she said, okay, this is where we're going to start. So she pulled out her Bible, and she started finding places, you know, in Jerusalem and Israel and Egypt. And she pulled out a globe, and she said, see this story going on right here, this, right here on the globe? This is where this happens. This is a real place. This happened in real time. And it's like this light bulb went off for these kids. So first off, we're not really teaching our kids anything but stories, and they believe us. When, they, when we call them stories, they don't realize this is history. And so one of the things we advocate is for in, in Sunday school to change the language from Bible stories to Bible history because that gives us this idea that this is an objective, an objective event that actually occurred in real time. Secondly, and this is one of the things that um, I was lucky that I didn't have to experience. When I was 12, my pastor went through a couple of series on apologetics. And for the first time in my life, I realized that the stuff that I had been learning my whole life in church wasn't just what we believed. It was actually true. And I could study it. I could break it down. I could try to prove it false. And every time Someone would try to prove it false. It turned out to actually be true. I could engage my mind with this. And so I would say that's another thing that we're not teaching our kids. Uh, Thirdly, we're not teaching them fully what we believe. If you look at some of the statistics that that, uh, we have in here, kids are confused about the deity of Christ. Trying to find the the statistics here. So 41% are unsure about if Jesus was physically resurrected. 63 didn't believe Jesus was actually the son of the one true God. But there's a lot of them that actually believe that the, that the Bible is just one way to, to get to heaven. And Jesus was just one of many teachers that they should believe, which we actually go into a little bit in the New Spirituality chapter. So actually understanding what our kids actually believe. When I was in high school, I remember our youth pastor, he came our senior year. During the summer, instead of doing some topical you know, Bible study, we went through the statement of faith line by line to know exactly what it was that we believe. And we think that kids are going to get bored by this, but I think we would be surprised at how kids want something real to believe in. And if we're just giving them entertainment, they can get entertainment anywhere. We need to give them things that they can, be con- that they can have conviction about, because if they don't feel that this is really true, there's no reason to have conviction
1: Yes, you know, I look at the kind of papers that they're writing in seventh, eighth grade science, ten-page papers, you know, research papers on mm-hmm. you know scientific issues or historical issues or issues in the news, and they're they're writing very challenging, you know, on very challenging topics, and yet when we bring them to church for one hour on a Sunday or on a Friday night youth group. You know, we do a 20-minute devotion and then play a bunch of games. But what Mm -hmm. you're saying is that we can teach them deep truths about apologetics, about theology, about the Bible, and they want to be challenged on these issues, and that's something youth groups, unfortunately, aren't doing.
2: Yes. I I was going to say, one of the quotes in the book is, what we win them with, we win them to. So if we're winning them to food funds and friends, once they go to college, they can get that at, at a fraternity or sorority or or wherever else they want to get that, and we're not winning them to Christ.
1: Yes. Now, what would you say to the youth pastor out there? Now you're speaking as a parent, the youth pastors out there are thinking, well, you know, I've got to attract kids to my youth group, and when I start teaching these uh, deep truths here, they won't be attracted. My attendance will go down kind of thing. What would you say to that youth pastor as a parent?
2: Well, first off, I, I, would, I would really like to see evidence that attendance goes down when you actually go deep. That seems like one of those things that people assume, but it's not actually true. And again, even if they're attending, if they're not learning anything, what's the point of having them there? Basically, what we're doing is we're inoculating them mm-hmm. to, to truth. And, and they think, oh, I know, I know the Bible. I know the gospel. I remember when I was at a, a church in Dallas. Whenever they would have Baptism Sunday, they had people stand up and give their testimony. And I cannot even tell you how many people's testimony started out with, I grew up in the church and thought I was a Christian this whole time, until I finally understood what the gospel was. So I, I, think, I, I think it's one of those things that, uh, number one, I think youth pastors need to know that you can go into the deep things and you can make it fun at the same time. Number two, kids want to learn this stuff. I've heard from, um, I've gotten emails from people that say, oh, I've started going through apologetics with my seventh grade girls, and attendance has actually increased because they have so many questions that they haven't been able to ask, and they are just riveted by this. And, uh, and I would say, even if on the off chance that kids are like, well, this isn't as fun as somewhere else, and so I'm going to go somewhere else, our job is not to get numbers. It is to disciple. If we are not discipling, if we're not creating disciples, if we're not creating believers who know how to stand up for what they believe, why they believe it, all we're doing is keep bringing people in temporarily who are going to walk straight out the back door the second one of their college professors says, you can't trust the Bible. And at that point, what good has numbers done you? So basically, you have to have a long-term vision. And I think that uh, youth pastors, I know a lot of times they get so much pressure to get the numbers up, but I would just encourage them to start looking at the statistics, and if you're getting pushback from from the, the rest of the church or the head pastor, start showing them these statistics and say, what do you want me to do? Do you want more numbers, or do you want more kids? They're going to stay in the faith after they leave this church.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I remember when I began as a youth pastor, I inherited you know a group that had a 10-minute devotional and then two hours of fun and uh, i remember i changed the whole program and half the kids left and mm. and i said well we want the kids that really want to be discipled and grow in christ and even non-christian kids who are seeking we're not here to be a fun group you know they can get that yeah. uh, summer fun or somewhere else we're here to make disciples, that's what we're all about. And I got a lot of uh, pushback from the parents as well because their kids were complaining and everything. You know, if the leadership understands the call to discipleship, just as you said, you know, we stayed the course and the group grew again. In fact, got bigger than before with kids who were discipled and wanted to Mm. know the Bible and theology and apologetics, just the things that you are talking about. So I think what you just said, every youth pastor and pastor and board of a church really needs to hear it's not about the numbers it's about making disciples and if your attendance goes down at the beginning we will stay the course you know
2: yep I love hearing that story that's amazing
1: yeah well you said that there are several myths about the youth Exodus tell us about some of these myths
2: yeah so some of some of the myths that we have about this is uh, Julie talked at the uh, she she refers to it as the boomerang kids is this idea that all kids are going to leave, but they eventually come back. And while that was the case at one point, that it's actually not the case anymore, because what we had previously was we had culture reinforcing the Christian worldview. You had maybe uh, kids that they, they went off to college or they got their first career, they're just trying to pay attention to making their way in the world, but once they settle down and they get married and they have kids of their own, all of a sudden those nostalgic those nostalgic feelings of, oh, I remember when I, you know, kids should should grow up in church. I mean, that's actually how my parents became Christians, is both of them grew up in church, walked away, and then when they had my sister, who my older sister, they thought kids should be raised in church. And so they started going to church, and that's when they actually heard the gospel and understood it for the first time. So we are treating culture like it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, when that is not the case. The number of People that say my religious preference is either non-Christian religion or none. I think according to Steve Cable, it's going to go up to 50% of the population by 2030. And I mean, that's not that long away. And so what we have is we have kids that maybe have grown up in the church, but then once they become parents themselves, there is no cultural pressure to go back to church. Or you have kids who didn't grow up in the church. And there's no reason, there's no nostalgic reason for them to return to the church. So according to the statistics, it's like they talk about anywhere between, um, I think, 60 to 85 percent of kids leave the church after college. And then they give kind of a a smaller percentage of how many return. But what it comes down to is we're losing about 35 percent of the church population every single generation which itself is really disturbing, but that is, that in itself is just looking at church attendance. That's not even looking at what do these people actually believe, because now that we have progressive Christianity, we have people in churches that believe that Jesus didn't actually exist, or if he did exist, he was just a, a moral leader. who He didn't actually physically rise from the dead. He was just a pawn in a religious, you know, he was just showing people how to submit to authority. And they're believing things like that, a very non-salvific faith. So even looking at the number of people that are in church does not even tell us the number of people who actually have a believing and salvific faith in Christ, which I think is probably even more, it's going to increase those statistics right there. So that myth that they leave and then they come back, that's not the case or the myth that if, if you do Awana youth group and, you know, Christian schools, that they'll be okay. Well, if your Christian schools in Awana are only teaching what the Bible says and not why the Bible says it and why the Bible can be trusted, then a kid, as soon as they hear, oh, this is a book that was written by, I, I even, I literally had um, a nurse that I was talking to a couple months ago that said, oh, the Bible was just written by a bunch of people um, white males and i said well i mean just that that buzzword right there i said do you consider middle eastern people to be white and she said well no i said you realize the book was written by jews in the middle east and she was like oh okay but she had fully bought into this belief that it's just a book written by white males and so she didn't have to believe it
0: for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoy today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, We rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.